This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's using my time at home to learn a new language. Unfortunately, the language is Klingon, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us from California is Neil Ferguson, someone I've wanted to have on for a very long time. He's a historian and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the author of several best-selling books, including The Ascent of Money and The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power, From the Freemasons to Facebook. His latest project is a TV series for PBS called Neil Ferguson's Networld. Building on the ideas from the square and the tower, Networld is an exploration of how ideas and cultural movements spread among people viewed through the lens of social networks. Neil, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Cara. I should uh, confess that I'm not in California. Oh, where right are you? Right now, I'm I'm in Montana, oh, far wow. from the madding crowd. Oh, you're doing one of those. easier. Well, it's easier to do social distancing uh, in a state like Montana, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. What are you, 10 miles from each other? That'll work. Yeah, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Okay. You're calling from a Mon- Montana, and actually your screen name right now, we're using Squadcast, is called Generous Skywalker, so it's perfect. Um, so I want to get right into talking about what's going on right now. Your net world uh, from PBS couldn't be better timed in terms of talking about social networks. So I just want to sort of talk, start talking about, because and also the financial crisis. So this is hitting in two ways. One is a health uh, network problem, um, and the other is a financial network problem. So let's talk about the, I, I want to talk about the series in a minute, but I just want to get a lay of the land from your perspective of what's happening right now with coronavirus and also the economic fallout from it. Well, Cara, it's, uh, it's unfortunate to uh, have such good timing to have produced a three-part series uh, for PBS about networks and, amongst other things, contagion, uh, right in time for a pandemic wasn't really something I was hoping for. But I think it illustrates the importance of of understanding networks really at at any point in history, and, and particularly at this point. The key point of the series Networld is to introduce some concepts about network science to a a lay audience uh, using history to kind of make it a little easier and more digestible. The situation we're in at the moment is a perfect illustration of how, how networks function. If you think of the world as a highly integrated network, Wuhan was one 
node in the network. Wuhan was far more connected to the rest of the world in 2019, 2020 than it had ever been in all of history with direct flights from Wuhan to John F. Kennedy and San Francisco airports, amongst many, many others. And so an, an epidemic, an outbreak of a, of a novel coronavirus in Wuhan could, because of uh, our international transportation network, get to the rest of the world with astonishing speed, with most travel bans that were imposed uh, in late January too late to stop the virus getting out. New York Times ran a nice piece just today showing how, how it was that this virus was able to go global so very swiftly. And I think there's a, a second point uh, which needs to be understood, and that is that when when a virus arrives in a particular city, it's spread by the social network that uh, spreads out from that, that city's airport with each passenger uh, potentially transmitting the virus to that passenger's social network. So that's the next thing that most people have a poor handle on. People know about social networks. They talk about them all the time. But I find that most people don't understand how networks actually function because that's arcane. All right, let's talk about how networks actually function because right now social network, of course, is is given to mean Facebook or a Twitter or any of these uh, digital social networks. But social networks are since the beginning of time, since the, the Neanderthals, really. So talk a little bit about how they operate and this idea of nodes and people you know, creating this contagion of, of links, which sometimes are very good, is that you have networks that are positive and supportive. So talk about the idea of a network from a historical sense. Well, I'm an historian, but I'm a historian who's always been interested in, in social networks. Uh, I wrote, for example, quite a lot of my early work on the uh, German-Jewish banking networks of the 19th and 20th century. But it was only relatively recently in the last few years that I started to educate myself about how social networks really function. They predate humanity because other species have social networks. But we are, as a species, uh, uniquely good at building social networks. It's one of our, our strengths as a species, one of our evolved advantages. And so the social networks of human beings predate all the more sophisticated structures that we later built, like uh, states, which are hierarchical structures for managing large numbers of people at scale. But our natural mode of organization is the social network. And Yeah, which uh, is groups of people who know each other or have something in common, correct? It it could be a bunch of different things. Exactly. And it, it, it usually in primitive societies emanates out from familial structures. But uh, but people don't just live in families, even in the most uh, primeval uh, state. They, they have usually some larger structure and, and that structure can be graphed. So the key point to start with is that we all have a social network. Even the most misanthropic person has some connections to the rest of humanity. No man is an island and we're all nodes in some kind of social network. And, and that's the key to understanding why something like a virus or a crazy idea, because they they spread virally too, can pass from one person to another. It's all about where we are in our social network and how well connected a particular node is. You'll perhaps have heard Cara of the role played by super spreaders right, in exactly, a pandemic. Right exactly, right now. Which right uh, now is an issue is clusters, I think they're calling them in this case. Well, the first notion is to think of every individual as a node and a whole bunch of nodes that are, are close together as a cluster. Uh, but what's crucial in a network is that there tend to be a few edges, that's to say links between nodes, 
that connect a lot of clusters together. And a super spreader can be somebody who plays that role, that they are that one person, maybe just an acquaintance, that connects cluster A to cluster B. In South Korea, things ran out of control, despite there really having quite good precautions in place for a pandemic, because one patient, patient 31, managed to meet and, and infect a really large number of people in a remarkably short space of time. And so when you ask the question, how does a, a virus spread? The answer is that you have to understand the network architecture, the structure of the network that it penetrates, as much as you have to understand the properties of the virus itself. And that is a key insight from network science, which is why some of the best people to follow, if you've been trying to understand COVID-19, have been network scientists like Nick Christakis at Yale, who's been a big influence on my work. So talk about these networks. So one of the, the idea, again, let's talk historically how they've been used, because they're used for the benefit of people meeting to. They're not that there was, say, a CPAC meeting and one guy seemed to shake everybody's hand during this meeting, that kind of thing. And that's a super spreader, presumably. Um, but talk about the uses of social networks and, and, and then connecting the nodes of the different social networks, because it's been a very important thing for civilization, as you say, it's kept us above other species. One of the striking features of, of the human race is that we uh, we do naturally form networks without really that much organization being needed. And a lot of the most extraordinary ideas in history, a lot of the biggest breakthroughs, have come from these sorts of informal social networks. And I try to give a few examples from the modern era, uh, showing, for example, how the, the ideas of the Reformation spread from an initial cluster of disgruntled German clergymen right across Northern Europe to transform religious life in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Some similar processes transmitted the scientific revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, and, and then the political revolutions of the American and French revolutions, and then the industrial revolution. So most of the big changes uh, that transform the world and really make modernity happen originated not in any planned uh, initiative of uh, a government, of a king or a queen or an emperor. No, they, they came out of these networks of like-minded individuals obeying one of the first laws of network science, which is that birds of a feather flock together. People interested in making steam engines more efficient got in touch with one another and together as a kind of informally organized network greatly increased the efficiency of steam engines, a fundamental part of the Industrial Revolution, just to give one example. Or if you want an American example, uh, the American Revolution really happens uh, because there is this network of uh, alienated patriots who fed up with British rule in New England, who, who are all members of a variety of, of different clubs and associations and Masonic lodges. And that network, uh, of which Paul Revere was an extremely important member, proved to be more powerful when it was mobilized than the British Empire, which I think illustrates the central point of both my book, The Square and the Tower, and the series Networld, which is that networks really can be more powerful than formally hierarchically organized institutions like states. They often are the sources of revolution, which is good. I mean, by and large, the revolutions I've described to you have, uh, on balance, been quite substantially positive for the human race. The trouble is the same networks that I'm talking about could also transmit viruses literally in the biological sense, because human history has been in many ways a succession of pandemics, but they can also transmit 
bad ideas, crazy ideas. And the best illustration of that is that the idea that witches lived amongst us spread almost as fast as Martin Luther's idea that we should uh, clean up the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th and 17th centuries. Let's take that one through, a negative one. And I want to get into, we're going to, in the next section, we're talk about the modern age and how that works. Talk about witches, where it starts and how it then spreads. And and do do bad bad notions spread faster? And we're going to get to that also in digital. Let's first talk about something like that. So where did that come from and then how did it spread out? Obviously, it's kind of an interesting thing to spread out because witches are interesting inherently. Right. Um, and interesting, but not necessarily true things, do have a way of appealing to the human mind. Everybody uh, listening to this will have uh, heard of the Salem uh, witch trial, uh, because that, that's been made famous by literature. But that was just part of uh, an extraordinary global uh, craze uh, for hunting witches that spread all across Europe and basically went everywhere where the Protestant Reformation happened. And thousands of people were put to death, mostly women, in the belief that they were witches practicing witchcraft. Where did this mad idea come from? Well, the answer is that even as Martin Luther was spreading his ideas about the need to clean up the Roman Catholic Church, which produced Protestantism, he was also throwing out a bunch of other ideas, including the idea that witches lived amongst us. That was something that Luther uh, mentioned in at least a couple of different places. There was a keen interest in this idea, both amongst Catholics and Protestants in the time of the Reformation, an interest that was fueled by a best-selling book, uh, Malleus Maleficorum, uh, which was the sort of hammer of wickedness, uh, which went viral, as we would say today, became extremely widely disseminated and uh, and really encouraged the idea that in a time of religious crisis, a time of polarization, division between Protestants and Catholics, uh, there could be this column of sinister people in league with the devil that you had to root out. And so what you saw was a, uh, a, a pandemic of, of persecution of alleged witches. Uh, similar kind of phenomena went on at around uh, at the same time, which uh, directed uh, hostility against Jewish communities. And so we, we see in the in the early modern world a very interesting oh this is the classic moment when your children walk into That's the all right, podcast. no problem. Keep Lucky going. we're not live or I'd be like that BBC guy. Um, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Campbell. I have a two year old here. <laughs> it's okay, we uh, love who, children. Who just decided Keep to come and join the show. I don't know where we, we're gonna have to cut that out unless you want to. No, very we don't. Spontaneous we don't show. cut anything out. Go ahead. We have, well, have there's to... nothing like homeschooling and, and home right. podcast recording. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So what, what we see in this early modern period in the 16th and 17th century is that good and bad ideas can spread through the network. The network, of course, at that time was being provided by the printing press, the new technology that had swept Europe in the late 15th century that, that made it so easy for Luther's ideas, both good and bad, to spread. When we get back with uh, Neil Ferguson, we're going to talk about what happens in the modern age. Because one of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting when you talked about the idea of networks is uh, the idea that uh, they're, they're like a contagion. And so in this network theory, we want to find answers to why the internet sort of really uh, hypercharges these divisions uh, and and why bad and false stuff moves so much quicker uh, in, in the current age. We'll be back with Neil Ferguson. He's the author of many books, and we'll be talking about that when we return. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Neil Ferguson. He's the host of a new PBS series called NetWorld. He's also the very well-known historian uh, who's written books like The Ascent of Money and The Square and The Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. All right, let's talk a little bit. We're talking about the historical elements of them, that we create these networks and there are nodes in the networks. Talk about what's happened now, because in the ideas of Martin Luther and some others, it's either spread through word of mouth, or and that's a lot slower, and then printing press, which is a little bit faster, and then radio and television. Talk about where we are now in this era and how these new technologies sort of amplify these ideas. Well, since I moved to Stanford, I've been subjected to quite a lot of uh, technological supremacism. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'd like to push back against the people who believe that we made the world anew when we invented the internet by observing that things uh, as powerful and enduring as Christianity and Islam appear to have spread globally without the need for any technology at all, without even the need for the printing press. So one thing's clear, human beings can create giant networks uh, without technology and can spread ideas as well as, of course, diseases over very long distances. So that's an important insight from history because I think it kind of inoculates us against the tendency to assume that our time is entirely different from all previous times and therefore studying history is a waste of time. Let's just do STEM, the kind of thing that you hear quite a bit (laughs) in my neighborhood uh, in California. You don't think they hung the moon, Neil? Come on, they're the smartest people on Earth. It's amazing, isn't it? But, But, you know, there was a lot of hubris around Silicon Valley in 2016. They thought that they had not only invented the world, anew, but created something that was truly and unequivocally awesome, which was a giant platform for the biggest ever social networks. I mean, if you think of the internet as a platform on which you build the World Wide Web, and then you build platforms on the World Wide Web, like Amazon and uh, and uh, Google and, and then Facebook, then caramba, you've created the biggest and fastest online networks there have ever been. And there's no doubt that they're the fastest because things now move at a much faster speed than they did uh, in the age of uh, of the telegraph, certainly than in the age of the printing press. So what have we uh, learned about this brave new world in the last few years? Well, we've learned that as in the 16th and 17th century, if you suddenly greatly improve the speed with which people can communicate and lower the cost of communication, integrate the, the, the giant network of humanity better, yeah, there are some benefits to that, but there are some downsides too. And I think what we've learned in the last four years is that those downsides are really quite serious. Once you understand network science a bit better, then you're less surprised to discover that uh, creating uh, giant online social networks has led to polarization. That's not such a surprising finding if you understand the science. Well, that maybe um, they've done it before by word of mouth or by printing press or whatever. These are amplified and, and faster. Does that change the nature of them, how quickly they move or the damage they can do? Well, it, it does in a number of important ways. The, the fundamental 
tendency towards polarization was well established by sociologists working on high school friendship networks in the 1970s. Uh, so that's no uh, revelation, and that clearly predates any uh, any kind of widespread internet. But what's really important about today is that the network platforms that dominate the online networking process are set up in a particular way. They're configured, as you know, Karen, and I'm sure your listeners understand, to, to maximize our attention, to retain our attention, because the business model of the network platforms is fundamentally to sell ads. And so they need to keep us engaged. And this tendency for the algorithm to prioritize that which is engaging for the profit motive is very fundamental to our, our era. The age of print was not like this. In fact, if you think about print, it's amazing how decentralized it remains as a medium. Uh, there really are no entities that emerge in the history of print to rival something like Facebook. And most people consumed print for many years uh, in a completely different model through public libraries, where essentially the content was free and there were no ads. And the material was organized, uh, as it is in all libraries, on a rational basis, not with the view to maximizing your attention, your engagement. So, so because so the not network, a not yeah. a screamy library where right. most screamy, horrible things were in the front. So the yeah. architecture you're talking about basic architecture, which I talk about a lot, is this idea that it's designed to be viral, it's designed to be yeah. screamy, it's designed to be ar it's architected that way. Exactly. And I think that makes our era distinctly different. Uh, and it means that as some interesting studies have shown since I published the book, The Square and the Tower, some fake news does indeed travel further and faster than true news. And my favorite example of this was the story that went viral in 2016, Pope endorses Donald Trump, uh, which was entirely untrue. But it was so engaging as a story that it, it went viral in all the platforms that you, you can imagine. So we have a peculiar problem here, which is that uh, our online social networks are really being optimized for engagement and uh, dopamine hits. And that, I think, explains why it feels as if the world is a world in which uh, crazy fake news travels very far and very fast. And it's, of course, why this pandemic has so many different facets to it, because it's not just about the virus being transmitted through social networks. It is also about fake news about the virus being transmitted through social networks, sowing confusion about how, in fact, be uh, individuals should behave. So the networks are interacting in a way that I think in the United States is really quite worrying. We'll get into the worrying part in a second, but the, the idea is not just fake news, it's real news goes by very quickly. And so everyone is constantly has a lot of information creating a level of anxiety that I think you've never seen in a pandemic before because you know everything even, you know, and you see every uh, press release, every tweet, every everything is known to you. And before, if you, it's if you turned on the radio, if you turned on the television, it's very hard to avoid the news. Yeah. That's correct. So, we are so in some ways addicted to news. Right. Well, talk about the worrying aspects of it. I think the first thing to observe, Karen, is it's surprising. I don't think ex ante, if you'd been told we're going to build this thing called the internet and the following uh, technologies are going to evolve, you would have said, oh, then I predict everyone will be addicted to news. Uh, you might have said, well, that, that'll be a fantastic opportunity for uh, the entertainment business and uh, people will consume many more novels or romantic comedies. But but the fact that it was news that really uh, captured our 
uh, engagement, not to mention, of course, pornography, though nobody ever talks about that in polite company. And that that's the surprising thing. The problem about uh, the way this is working today is that we're not only bombarded with information, we're not really able easily to discriminate between uh, quality and bad information. And that's vital at a time like this when you really want to have a priority given to the experts who understand epidemiology and are really going to offer you meaningful insights into the crisis that we face. And you don't want to waste your time reading a Medium post by some 20-something nerd who decided to pronounce uh, on the basis of practically no knowledge his own theory of why we shouldn't panic about coronavirus. And I see highly intelligent people unable to discriminate between quality content and crap content. And the crap content can actually endanger not only your own life, but the lives of those around you. Because if you buy the crap story that there's nothing to worry about, and it's just the flu, you don't change your behavior, you go in spring break, you party on in Florida, you fly back, you give the virus to a whole bunch of people, and very quickly, you're the super spreader. And that's that's what's dangerous. So you have a, you have a situation where analog networks meet digital networks and create sort of a crash that's impossible. What, how do you, how do you then fix the situation or is it unfixable given they both sort of play upon each other? Well, maybe we need to go through an even bigger disaster, uh, fully to appreciate, uh, the need for radical reform. We've run the experiment of a financial crisis in 2008-9, which was really a network outage of the financial system. Then we had the experiment of the 2016 election, which saw really a huge disruption of the democratic process. Uh, but we still haven't really changed that much about the way the world works, certainly the online world. And now we're going to go through a pandemic and a great many people are going to die who might otherwise have been saved Uh, And maybe that will force us to take a much harder look at the way in which information is disseminated, particularly in the United States, where I think we have uh, a very unhealthy combination at the moment, partly because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, of legislation that goes back to the mid-1990s, long before the uh, the giant network platforms emerged. Uh, The situation is essentially this, that the network platforms are near monopolies or duopolies, Uh, in a bunch of different crucial online segments. And when they want to be network platforms, without any responsibility for the content that they carry, they can be network platforms. But when they want to engage in uh, what is, in effect, some kind of censorship, uh, they say, oh, well, we're just being publishers. There's no First Amendment online. And so I think we have a kind of catch-22 here in which they can't really be sued for harms arising from the content on their Uh, on their platforms, and nor can they be sued if uh, they engage in some kind of discrimination against uh, free speech. That can't be a healthy state of affairs. They are far too powerful, far too much of our information, including news, but other information too, comes to people through the filters created by companies like Google and and Facebook. Uh, And yet they are really unaccountable, uh, not just politically, but legally, it's very difficult to sue them under these circumstances. Absolutely. This is, this, you're speaking my language here. Um, but one of the things is that you talked about the square. What is the public square in this case? They're private squares that are, or they're public squares run by private companies. Right. I guess would be a better way to put it. And we grappled with many of these 
problems before with the rise mm -hmm. of newspapers and then of, of television. Yeah. Uh, but and not to mention radio. But we've singularly failed to consistently apply the rules that we evolved in the 20th century to govern uh, uh, free speech on uh, private platforms uh, with respect to the internet. And I think it's a huge glaring anomaly. And it's leading to all kinds of, I think, uh, very unfortunate consequences. On the one side, Mark Zuckerberg can say, well, look, we, we just carry utterly mendacious political uh, ads. That's not, not up to us to decide what you can see. It's a free country. On the other hand, the community standards of, uh, of Twitter or, or for that matter, Facebook are extraordinarily opaque and appear to be made up by the companies as they go along with the result that uh, you can find yourself suddenly uh, vanishing from Google search lists if you inadvertently violate those community standards. So the companies have great power to transmit mischievous messages if they so choose. They also have great power to censor perfectly reasonable messages if they so choose. And that impunity, which feels like a sort of catch-22, is the thing that I'm most, most concerned about. I argued in a paper that Hoover published last year, which was really a follow-up to the book, The Square and the Tower, that we needed simultaneously to change or utterly scrap Section 230, but to create some quasi-First Amendment right so that the companies faced a kind of new jeopardy and they need to be vulnerable to litigation if harms arise from the content that they host. That's good. They need to, they need to pay those sorts of legal bills. And they also, but they also need to be held to the kind of standard that we we hold people to at a university like Harvard, which long applied a First Amendment rule as if it was a public institution. And I strongly believe that that idea that an, a, an institution as powerful as Facebook should act as if the First Amendment applies, I think that's a very good idea. So they, uh, one of the things that they uh, argue, I think Mark just did recently, was that he said we're somewhere between a, tech, a platform and a publisher. And I was sort of like, all right, are you, a, you know, from the old SNL skit, are you a, um, a dessert topping or a floor wax? Like, <laughs> I don't even understand the distinction of what he was talking about, meaning he pick, you pick and choose what's better. But scrapping you are, this, that's you. massively controversial among tech people, largely because yes, they which, say it'll which, wreck their industries completely. Excellent. Yes, my response is when they send the lawyer around to say, which I knew I was onto something when they started to send the lawyers around uh, to explain to me why it was such a terrible idea. Of course, that this would increase the legal costs of these companies by an order of magnitude. Good. Mm -hmm. That's what they need. All right. The fact that they're so crazily profitable is, in fact, a reflection of their lack of legal uh, liability. So we imagine, need to increase that. And I think that's imagine, a far preferable solution, Cara, to creating right. some burdensome federal regulatory uh, authority that would then try to manage uh, the internet the way they so successfully managed the railroads. Let, let's not go down that route either. So would that be a problem? It would have been, that was gaining steam, of course, all across Washington. But now I think they're, they're saved. I think they've been saved by this coronavirus situation. I think there's going to be no appetite to start to tax big companies that are possible employers of people. Yeah. Well, Karen, I think uh, they were already kind of saved because I think that Washington had swallowed hook, line and sinker the antitrust solution. And we were about to waste months, years on, on a bunch of antitrust actions that would have changed 
pretty much Fair point. nothing. And mm-hmm. I so I think that even before COVID nineteen and the uh, and the crisis that it's caused, the the big tech companies had, had won. They they pulled off a tremendous combination of uh, propaganda and lobbying to get themselves out of trouble. But I I really hope that in this crisis, those companies can do something beyond just deliver uh, goods to our doors when we can't go shopping. For example, it is very clear to me that uh, you could use the technology, uh, location data, social network graphs that those companies have about most Americans to engage in a very sophisticated and efficient contact tracing exercise once the testing uh, has finally caught up with the rest of the world. And I've seen just one story about that possibility in the Washington Post. I want to know the what Times. these companies, was at the Times, one, what are these companies actually doing to counter the pandemic? Are they in fact making the data available that they could to help us do what South Korea so effectively did, bring the pandemic under control. And I, I, I remain to be convinced. Uh, at this point, I don't see much sign of it. But I think it's a key question. There's an enormous public good embedded in the data that they have acquired from individuals like us over the last decade or so. It is of enormous potential value to society. We gave that data away far too cheaply right. in return yep. for the supposedly free services they provided us with. That's another reason the companies are so profitable. Yeah. Uh, but I think the real question we need to ask is ultimately, in a crisis like this, can Facebook say, oh, it's our data, you can't have it? Because at the moment, if I want to find out with some degree of precision about my social graph, if I want to find out uh, who in my social graph has, uh, in fact, been diagnosed as having uh, uh, COVID-19. I can't do it. Right. No, then, of course, there's, I, I call, I agree with you. I think I call it our citizens cheap dates to the internet companies, essentially. Yeah. We get, yeah. we take a map and we get what? Nothing. And they get all the money. But in this case, there's obviously worries about uh, privacy and other things. How do you address that issue? Well, those of tracking. worries. They can do, the other countries right. do do it. I do know that. We don't want to be China, and in in the uh, in Networld, I I make this this distinction between a Chinese internet in which surveillance is clearly going to be complete and uh, available to the party via the Chinese network platforms like Alibaba. Uh, we don't want to be China, uh, but we actually are a form of China already. It's just that the data are in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and his counterparts at Google, not necessarily accessible to the federal government, or at least not to the extent that they might have been if the uh, federal government had carried on with its uh, its intentions through the National Security Agency to have access to the data. So we need to do more than just leave things as they are. I think there needs to be a much clearer distinction between what must remain private and ideally in the possession of the individual and what can be accessed uh, uh, for public policy reasons in a time of crisis uh, such as the one we find ourselves in now. Uh, There's no question that that's a solvable problem. Uh, There there is no doubt that there are ways in which you could uh, strike a balance between individual privacy and the public interest, but we're not even trying to do that. Right. It was interesting because I was just interviewing a New York City official and they were saying we would like some of that data, but we don't think the go- this particular government should have it because um, they were worried about, you know, 
all this data yeah. in the hands of the yeah. Justice Department, for example, this particular it's, Justice Department. This is a fundamental problem for our democracy, and we aren't grappling with it, and we should have grappled with it from 2016 onwards in a much more serious way. Instead of which, as I've found, there is a kind of group of relatively well-informed people. Some are in law schools and some are in business schools and some are actually in the industry and some used to be in the industry who talk about this stuff. But when you try and take the message to Washington, hey, there is some stuff that needs to be fixed, it is deeply, deeply frustrating and that the learning curve of our legislators has been alarmingly shallow. And the ways in which the administration operates have definitely not inspired confidence. So this is a really profound crisis uh, of our democracy. And I'm afraid we're about to have it exposed again, only this time in a life-threatening way uh, by this pandemic. All right. When we get back, we're here with Neil Ferguson talking about issues around networks and and the power of the Internet companies. When we get back, I want to hear more about his show Networld, which is on PBS, about this issue and the impact of networks on our society. We're back with Neil Ferguson, the host of Networld on PBS. Obviously, he's a very well-known historian and also author of several best-selling books, including The Ascent of Money and The Square and the Tower. Neil, talk about what you want to, the point you're trying to get through in Networld. Your, your, your goal is to, is to introduce regular people to understand how networks work, whether they're analog or digital or anything else. That, that is the point of doing television, actually. I've done television for much of my career. It's a way of reaching a wider audience than you can with a, a book, especially a book with footnotes. And so essentially, I've taken The Square and the Tower and I've turned it into three one-hour films. The first film is essentially an introduction to the basic components of network science. You are a node, you're in a network, your relationships are edges. Uh, you probably gravitate towards like-minded people. If you know what homophily is already, well, you might find this is all kind of easy. If you don't know what homophily is, you should probably tune in. And so we look in that first episode at, at a typical contagion of ideas, the Reformation and another one, the American Revolution, and just establish the key point that when something goes viral, it's as much about the network structure as about the thing in itself. The second hour is really about the kind of economic consequences of the, the rise of the network platforms. And it draws an analogy between uh, the giant uh, tech companies of today and the great industrial companies uh, of the late 19th century, the railroad companies, the steel companies, and so on. Because I think we are in a gilded age, which it's simply inescapable that that analogy works, except that someone like Mark Zuckerberg, because he has, has power in the public domain, in the public sphere, is really more powerful than John D. Rockefeller. I'm rather skeptical of the idea that data is or are the new oil. It's really quite different from oil. It's more that, that Zuckerberg combines uh, the power of, of, of a Rockefeller or a Carnegie with the power of William Randolph Hearst, who Hearst, at, at right, one time yeah. was the biggest and most powerful newspaper publisher in America. And that's, a, that's really the argument of the second film. The third film takes it to the level of geopolitics and looks at uh, information wars, uh, not only uh, with uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, not only with the Islamists during the period after 9-11, but much more recently and pressingly, the information war between the United States and China, which I think is going to become more and more important and which has flared up not too surprisingly during this uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the idea that these competing networks in China and the United States is, is really interesting. And one of the things I've talked about a lot recently when I give talks is 
what kind of internet do you want for the next internet? Will it be a Chinese internet? Will it be a U.S. internet? And I agree with you. Our surveillance economy is there, uh, sitting quietly below the surface. It's very, it's very explicit in China. Talk about the the competition between the two, because one thing Donald Trump the other day was they didn't say enough about what they knew. Of course, we don't either. So talk about that concept. Well, I do think that the splinter net uh, existed from the moment the Chinese decided to build the Great Firewall and essentially prevent the big U.S. tech companies from taking over in China as they took over pretty much everywhere else. And so it's not new news that we have two internets in the world, a Chinese and a non-Chinese, because that's been true for some time. But what is important is that the Chinese, as they develop their social credit system in its uh, sophistication, are, are building a kind of totalitarianism beyond the wildest fantasies of, of Stalin and, and Mao, because they, with big data, really can monitor individual behavior to an extent that was impossible in the mid-20th century, even with the most paranoid dictator. The second point I'd make is that China's system is no longer confined to China. Uh, a key point is that the Chinese payment platforms, Alipay and its Tencent equivalent, WeChat Pay, are becoming global franchises. Uh, and China's uh, expansion in financial technology, to my mind, poses one of the biggest challenges to uh, US power in the 21st century, because US power depends very heavily on the primacy of the US dollar. If China succeeds in exporting its payment platforms to emerging markets, which it's currently doing, and then to the rest of the world, except probably the United States, that will be a major challenge to US power. And of course, it will also give the Chinese the data uh, through transactions of a great many people who are not Chinese. So it was interesting because when I interviewed Mark relatively recently, he was talking, he was using that excuse, of course. It was the sort of, I call the the she or me argument, that it's either him or me. And I'm like, oh, pretty bad choice, I guess. (laughs) Do you have third? Is there a third one I can choose, like myself, and and, there, and, and American democracy? That would be a better one. Um, but but they are definite risks. It took uh, Facebook a while, it took Mark Zuckerberg a while to realize that they had to make the argument: what's good for Facebook is good for the United States. Back in 2016, he was still talking about building a global community and essentially making Facebook an international. Uh, force. Once the attacks on Facebook in 2016 got up some steam, suddenly Facebook was uh, actually serving the national interest and regulating it would only be a win for China. Well, that was a deft argument to take to Congress. Uh, but I think it's it's clear, Karen, that we can't simply be asked to choose between Xi Jinping having all our data and Mark Zuckerberg having all our data. Uh, that can't possibly be right. The public sphere is uh, crucial to a functioning democracy. Uh, You can't simply have uh, the public sphere dominated by a handful of network platforms with an almost complete lack of accountability. We've got to change that. Uh, And it's not enough uh, for us to go through an antitrust action and maybe take WhatsApp away from Facebook and say, job done. The fundamental powers are still too great. And it's not just Facebook, it's Google too, which I think has got off relatively lightly in the last four years. But really... Well, how do you then do that? How do you how, how do you do that with liability? Liability is the way... I, I, I do think that, that there simply needs to be greater liability. That, that The tradition in the United States has been not necessarily to empower the federal government to regulate everything yes, to that lawyers, moves, bring the lawyers but, but to, to let 
the individual citizen and other corporations take legal action and have some chance of success. And I think if you imagine a, a world in which there just is greater liability for these tech companies, then I think you arrive at what I guess you and I would both want to see, which is a democratic system in which the internet uh, continues to provide the benefits that it undoubtedly provides. God knows we wouldn't be having this conversation uh, in the midst of a mm -hmm. pandemic if it weren't for the technology. But... Uh, leaves the individual citizen protected, uh, leaves the citizen's privacy uh, protected, gives the citizen ownership over uh, his or her data, uh, ensures that the government cannot access our private data as a, and when it chooses, but must show due cause uh, uh, of suspicion that we're engaged in terrorist activities. I think we can do that because we grappled with very similar challenges uh, with the advent of previous communication technologies. Sure. I think historians in the future will ask, why was it that they didn't really apply any of the analogies that they could have applied from radio and television to the internet? And I think the answer to that will be uh, about the weird ways in which Washington works. Uh, right. Why? Why? Right. Why? And I need think in the of end, these technologies. And their, yeah. need, their, their, lo their love of these technologies. Yeah, I mean, purposes. we all drank a fair bit of Kool-Aid. Yeah, they also no, used I th television. I think, I think, you know, we were crazy about radio, we were crazy about television, then we got crazy about the internet. I mean, it shouldn't really yeah. have been that hard to, uh, to create some analogous framework to prevent abuses by the, by the tech companies, but we didn't do it. So in this pandemic, let's finish up talking about the pandemic with the economic implications. It has enormous... Um, implications, both good and bad, that it can help inform people, get people. I think that you, social distancing has gotten a real boost from people talking about it online and trading stories and trading tips and things like that. As much as there is bad information, there's a lot of great information out there and people really are informed, especially via photos that they don't get from television, that you don't get from radio. Is there a way to use this for good right now? I mean, you could, I, I can see it being used for good, but at the same time, I can see Donald Trump doing crazy tweets and, uh, you know, creating all kinds of confusion. It also creates confusion economically. And I think that's one of the reasons Wall Street's so nervous is the economic confusion is, is still so vast. Well, I spent the weekend writing a, a piece comparing the current crisis with the outbreak of World War I, uh, it, it came as almost as big a surprise and it played out in a similar kind of time frame. We went from utter complacency to total panic in about the same period that Europe uh, went from those two stages to uh, in 1914. And I, I, I think we are uh, not out of the crisis period yet because people were unquestionably lulled into a false sense of security in the United States by things the president said that were then amplified by uh, cable news and social media. The responsibility doesn't lie with him alone. Uh, quite a lot of people were going around saying it's just the flu, it's no big deal, we have this under control. But that that message definitely went more viral than the message people like me were putting out in my journalism and elsewhere, which was, this is serious. It could be the most uh, disruptive pandemic since 1918-19. And so I think uh, in that initial phase, uh, what we, we saw was the amplification of complacency. And now there's a risk that we have the amplification of panic as people have moved from that earlier complacency to full-blown panic. I think the trouble is that you can't contain the pandemic without closing down the economy for a period. But if you close it down rigorously enough and have rigorous social distancing and quarantining of those who are infected, you can 
do it in a matter of weeks. We know that because we've seen South Korea do it. In fact, we saw the Chinese do it. Uh, it was only in Hubei that the virus went exponential. But we in the United States seem intent on having the worst of both worlds. We are going to do insufficient social distancing, people partying <laughs> in Fort Lauderdale, and right. we're going to do massive economic disruption. And so we won't contain right. the uh, the virus, but we will crash the economy. And that ah. if that doesn't persuade us that we're doing something wrong with the internet, then I really don't know what it what would what, what it'll take. A plague of locusts? I mean, what more do we need to realize that we, we've That's got next. something wrong? Yeah, it's, already in, it's already happening in Africa. I don't know how well locusts do in the North America, but, you know, Give it time. Yeah, absolutely. I just have to joke about this, but but it's funny. Um, so finish up talking about what network theory can bring to the end to this. What needs to be done? What is, give me the theories of the, how these things play themselves out. The witch trials did. Um, so many other networks that went crazy did eventually peter out, including pandemics. All of the pandemics eventually. How does talk about network theory and what happens? How does it end? How does it? How does it end? Network theory is a pretty good guide to what will happen uh, because when you apply it to past pandemics, you see that there's a kind of one-year to 18-month time frame. Either you successfully contain it or uh, it runs amok, but you end up with herd immunity, just a lot of people dead. I mean, that, that all runs its course. And in the same time frame, medical science in our time we'll get to vaccinations and we'll get to therapies so that this thing won't be a kind of multi-year event. It's a crisis that has a kind of discernible trajectory, but don't expect it to be one curve as a lot of people seem to. Past pandemics came in waves, three waves in the case of 1918-19, maybe two in 1957-58. Uh, so we should probably not expect this to be a, a simple narrative of beginning, middle, end. I think we might see some resurgence conceivably later in the year. The other thing that I think is important, and it's the reason I made NetWorld, is that if people properly understand social networks, they'll get why a very contagious, stealthy virus that you can transmit while you have no symptoms can spread so rapidly that you actually might well be on uh, walking down the street with a carrier. Uh, and I think if people understand their own place in the social network and, and properly understand how, how things go viral, then the social distancing will be practiced more rigorously. What I see is a lot of half-assed social distancing by people who don't fully grasp how a contagion operates. If they can only maybe just watch a part of NetWorld and see uh, the, the wonderful sequence where we talk about how crickets uh, chirp and how relatively few additional edges in a network connect everybody. I think I even say at one point, because this was all filmed a year ago, you know, one additional link can bring a, a contagious disease in Africa to your front doorstep. I think that insight that we are all more connected than we've ever been before in history, so that there are just 3.5 degrees of separation on Facebook, might make people adjust their behavior. It's only if we adjust our behavior quite radically that this pandemic doesn't spread right across the United States. Except now we're not just physically involved in networks, we're mentally involved in networks. I Correct. think that's really the difference. And digitally involved in networks. And you so can spread fake news about uh, the coronavirus as easily as you can spread the virus itself. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Neil, this is so helpful. I'm very excited uh, for people to watch this. They really should. NetWorld is a really interesting 
series, and it's really important. Do you, are you, let me just end, ask you a question. Are you, are you then completely like, we're fucked? Are you in that kind of mode? <laughs> I don't usually <laughs> use such technical terms well, from social science. I try to, I try to keep it clear. And, <laughs> Look, I know. think the, the U.S. is in a very perilous situation. Uh, the, the, uh, the good news is that we're ramping up testing very belatedly, but very fast, so that within nine days we should be where South Korea was. So we'll start knowing exactly just how widespread it is. We do have the technology, if we employ it, then to start contact tracing. I don't think it's too late for that in most states. But unfortunately, because of the combination of half-assed social distancing, partial uh, uh, rolling shutdowns of the economy, ongoing domestic travel, I think we're, we're getting it pretty badly wrong. If you ask me, are we going to be South Korea or are we going to be Northern Italy? Two weeks from now, I'd say we're going to be Northern Italy. It's much mm-hmm. more likely than that, than that we turn out to be South Korea. And that's a pretty... Uh, terrifying prospect, particularly for the coastal states that are most likely to suffer the largest uh, load of cases. The key in this pandemic is that when your healthcare system gets overloaded, when the hospitals are overloaded, then the mortality rate, the case fatality rate shoots up. And that's that's what happened in Hubei. It's what happened in northern Italy. It's probably going to happen in other places too. And if it happens in New York and California and Florida, Uh, then we're going to look back and and we're going to be asking some very hard questions about the way not only the federal government handled it, but the way we as a people handled this crisis and and the way in which we, we, I suppose we deluded ourselves or allowed ourselves to be deluded through mid-January, through February, into mid-March, thinking that somehow or other a pandemic would just treat the United States differently from other parts of the world. And and I think the the internet played a part in in sowing mm-hmm. this confusion and, and delusion. Well, you know, it was going to be a win that was just going to come right through us. Do you remember that one? There were so many of them. So many I, greatest hits. When this is over, hits. and it will be mm-hmm. over, not that the virus will go away, but we will learn to manage it, uh, we're going to look back. And I hope when we do the the inquest, I nearly said post-mortem, into what mm-hmm. went wrong in our handling of this wholly predictable pandemic, one of the things we'll address is the way in which the internet uh, contributed and the network platforms contributed to spreading complacency and worsening the crisis. As I said earlier, Kara, if if this crisis doesn't wake us up to the need to change uh, the regulatory framework of our public sphere, I don't know what will. We'll see. I I agree with you 100%. Anyway, uh, Neil, really, thank you so much for coming on the show at this really critical time. And please watch NetWorld. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. And my producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Neil, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at NFergus. And I have a website, uh, neilferguson.com, where all my journalism and video clips can be found. And where can NetWorld be seen on PBS? It's PBS, I think if you're outside the United States, that there is a way of seeing it on YouTube, uh, but it's streaming on PBS uh, right through, I think, until uh, the middle of next month. Great. You definitely should watch three episodes. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend in a very viral way. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.